0: Welcome to Pacific Mammal Researchers Marine Mammal Highlight Series. We are a 501c3 Research and Education Nonprofit studying marine mammals in the Salish Sea off Washington State. In this series, you will learn about different marine mammals as we discuss interesting facts about each species. This is our way to geek out, share some information, and have some fun. We hope you enjoy the series and be sure to follow us on Instagram to vote for which animal we talk about next. And without further ado, Welcome to the Pac-Man podcast. I'm Cindy and I'm Kat and this episode is a marine mammal highlight and thank you to all who voted on our Instagram story and Facebook story. Uh, it was a close one. It was like 52 to 48 percent. It was between the Burmeister porpoise and the Waddell seal uh, and I'm kind of surprised that the Burmeister won.
1: I am and I'm not because I feel like we've done the Waddell seal before and it was the same thing where I think like the a porpoise that no one's heard of is a little bit more like ooh, what's that Mm,
0: yeah that's true and this is so this is the one porpoise that we haven't done yet out of all the seven species (laughs) that we have of porpoises um and we don't know a whole lot about it which we'll get into but there is some fun stuff that we're going to talk about um and they're really kind of weird looking (laughs) if you ask me
1: yeah they're cool looking but yeah they're definitely a little bit odd oddly proportioned
0: Yes, exactly. Um, so with that, I'll let Kat get into what they look like and we'll start from there.
1: Yeah. So first of all, let's talk about where we find these guys. So mm-hmm. the Burmeister's porpoise are native to South America and typically they're found within 50 kilometers of shore. So they do prefer the shallower, um, shallower coastline. And basically, if you envision South America, they're effectively found from northern Peru on the Pacific side all the way down to southern Brazil on the Atlantic side. So kind of their range goes basically down around the whole coast of South America.
0: It looks like lipstick,
1: like on lips. Oh, it, it kind of does. Too. Yeah, it's true. Um, and I will say that pretty much everything I looked at did note that it's really hard to know whether their range is continuous over this whole area or whether they are have like little spots in here. Um basically it's really hard to see these guys in the wild um for many reasons which we'll get into i'm sure in many different ways yeah uh, and i'll
0: talk a little bit about that patchy or not patchy in the behavior and diet part so it's, it's hard to tell
1: yeah exactly um there was one one thing that i found that said that the atlantic and pacific populations may actually be distinct from one another mm-hmm. um which would kind of make sense because that's a really long way to travel if you're a porpoise.
0: And there's some physical differences between. I think the Pacific side is bigger.
1: If I, remember. I think some of them, some of them have been found to be yeah. bigger. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, slightly. Um, and I'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about the status closer to the end. But um, there are potentially some more isolated populations of or porpoises as well.
0: Okay, um, that
1: too. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> it's it's basically they're kind of in South America. Where yeah. exactly in South America <laughs> might be a little bit unsure, um, but mm-hmm. we do know where there are some hotspots of them for sure. Yes, um, they are, however, thought to be slightly more common in Pacific waters.
0: Mm. Yeah, um, which is interesting, and I'll I'll make a note about. I'll talk about that when I talk about the differences between the Atlantic and the Pacific.
1: Ooh, okay, interesting, um, yeah. intriguing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that particular source that I found was noting that that was because they prefer the colder, shallow waters and estuaries. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so because of this, we don't really have a great count for population numbers, so <laughs> that's for sure. Some researchers have estimated around about 500 individuals. I saw one that I think was an older site that said something about 10,000. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's oh. not accurate, especially given all of the other information that we have about these guys. Which I could, suggesting... I didn't
0: in all my research, I didn't see any.
1: I found a couple, and I'm pretty sure the 10,000 was very outdated because yeah. they are threatened. So, um, spoiler alert, <laughs> so um, I it, it's We don't really know. Basically, we really have not a great idea of how many there are, unfortunately. Um, So in terms of what they look like, they are a dark gray to black in color. Um, They have slightly lighter streaking on the chin and belly area. They're about five feet in length, so they get up to between 110, 165 pounds.
0: So they're kind of in between the vaquita and the harbor porpoise, kind of. Although the the harbor porpoise is technically the second smallest.
1: Yeah, I think they're bigger than harbor porpoise. Okay, because harbor porpoise is like five to five and a half feet at, at like, one fit, like large.
0: A pounds. Yeah.
1: Right. So these guys, I think, probably get bigger than harbor mm-hmm. porpoise. So I think it was on average about five feet in length, but you know, you have yeah. ones that are well, they could be that.
0: beefier too. Like
1: yeah, months. their their body shape is a little different. Yeah. Um, and they do, in addition to just having that kind of dark gray color overall, they do have slightly darker patches around their eyes, their lips, and then they do have a little stripe that goes kind of from their chin to their flipper which is asymmetrical and can vary with individual.
0: I know I thought that was so cool. Isn't that they neat? know that and they don't know a lot about the individuals or anything. I know. But a lot of it's from strandings so I guess that makes sense they would be able to see that.
1: pretty soon. A lot of it's from strandings and from just generally dead animals which we'll talk about in the thread. Yeah well that's section. the
0: thing. But yeah. I thought it was interesting too that one of them is straighter and the other one is more I saw it one place that curvaceous
1: OK, I have it's a curvaceous like, line.
0: Oh, yes. Apparently one side is more curvaceous than the other.
1: <laughs> How interesting. Does yeah. it, are they, are they sided with that? Like, is it typically that the left side is more curvaceous or the right side is more curvaceous you know, or does it?
0: I'm not sure. I, it, it Like would... consistent as- asymmetry? Yeah, or? because like they're, they're, they have that like with, I think it's like minkies and stuff too, right? That there they're are, one of the baleen whales, they have asymmetric, but I think it's the same on each side as asymmetric, you know, which side it is. Um, I remember there being one like that. I don't know if it was a minky. It might have been somebody else. Hmm. But I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know if they know. Yeah, I don't know either. They have a big enough sample size to know. (laughs) It's
1: true. (laughs) Um, So one of the weird things about these guys is their dorsal fin. So it's it's really weird. Um, If you're watching on YouTube, we will put a picture of it up on the screen so you can take a look. But if not, go Google Burmeister's porpoise because their dorsal fin is like three quarters of the way along their back it's like the furthest back of any any delphinid or
0: yeah it species, looks like a baleen
1: whale in yeah, that it's exactly back, back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yep and it's very as as one source put it it says it raises at a shallow angle so it's very shallow to the body and then kind of has like a very straight back edge or slightly convex um, trailing edge
0: it looks so- like somebody stepped on them like Aww. stepped on the dorsal fit like
1: but the, i mean <laughs> it looks stand. squished it does look a bit it look, well yeah you know what I was thinking it was almost like I guess that's because I've just been sailing but it reminded me of a sail that like kind of yeah, is like coming fan down or something yeah. that's like as, as it's like being lowered mm-hmm. down yeah. yeah if
0: you put like one of your um like those little hand fans you know mm-hmm. if you put it and just started closing it like that and then stuck it on the back of the porpoise it's that shallow right. yeah it doesn't go up it goes like that yeah
1: right exactly and that's the thing porpoises typically have very triangular fins so these guys are definitely kind of weird looking um <laughs> And then, um, in that, they do have tubercles, which I have a very hard time saying. We turbicles. were talking about this before we started recording. I was like, How I always do you say thought, this
0: word. I always say it like I thought it was tubercles. No, I'm not even saying r- it right. But, uh, I know. They're, tu- tu-
1: anyway. anyway, they're small like rounded nodes, basically, is what they are. Um, and those are found on the leading edge of the fin. Um, And this actually prompted their names, both Latin and common names, which we will get to in the fun facts. So stay tuned for that because I'm not gonna give that one away because it's pretty fun.
0: And there are, um, I'm excited for that. Um, There are a few different species that have these tubercles. And I think um, many of the porpoise species do, but they're not very prominent. There's like a couple of them. This one, it looks like the top of their dorsal fin and a little bit onto their back looks like a serrated knife. Like it's, Mm -hmm. they're quite distinct.
1: I'm really Just excited by the fun facts, <laughs> because, yeah, like you said, this is it's it's not that these are unique to Burmeisters porpoise, but they are very prominent on the Burmeisters yeah. for some reason, yeah, which again, exactly. why? I'm so curious as to know, why that would well, be. I don't think we really understand what they're for in the first place. I don't, I don't think, think so. I haven't read anything that explains mm-hmm. what their purpose is if they have a purpose at all.
0: I remember reading one paper for another probably another porpoise species uh, that had some thoughts about what they're for. Um, but now I can't remember what they were, mm. <laughs> but still, it was like,
1: hmm, maybe. right. If anybody knows what turbicles are for on a porpoise,
0: let right. us know. Let well, us know, please, because we're yeah. intrigued and we have no idea.
1: Right. <laughs> um, and then the last thing I had for their appearance is that they have 10 to 23 spade shaped teeth on the upper row of their teeth and about 14 to 23 on the lower row. So potentially slightly more on the lower row, potentially, mm. um, which kind of makes sense because that's usually the, you know, in terms of grabbing, Things, right, that might be the one that would be latching. requiring to have like more latching on. I wonder um, how small
0: they are compared to like the hammer porpoise and doll's porpoise teeth.
1: Oh, good. Yeah, good question. I mean, they're obviously spade shaped, but I'm not. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. I didn't see any images that were like compared to other things. Yeah, I guess they would be small. But just for that,
0: so remember uh, for our listeners, the spade shaped teeth are in porpoises, and dolphins have cone shaped teeth. That's one of the differences between dolphins and porpoises.
1: Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was all I had for their distribution and appearance. gonna jump over to their diet and behavior so since we just
0: talked about teeth i'm going to talk about food because that's we literally know barely anything about their food wow so so feeding all i can find is that they're pretty sure based on stomach contents like i said much of this information is from strandings and other killed animals like the cat will get into but um all i could find is basically they're like oh they eat squid and shrimp and anchovies and other demersal which means bottom fish and pelagic which means more open water fish so that's pretty general kind
1: of anything <laughs> like right yeah
0: fish um, they have noted that animals off of Chile have been known to eat mollusks as well so octopus, snails, wow. things like that hmm. so could be some differences between populations which we'll kind of talk about too in um other sections um but that's really all we could get from feeding <laughs> nothing short and sweet short and sweet um that's pretty much what we got so um as kat alluded to these guys are really inconspicuous at the surface they are hard to see um and on top of that their dorsal fins don't come up out of the water right they slant back so you know sometimes when we see the harbor porpoises they they barely come out of the water and their dorsal fins barely even look like they're there so if they were squished down you wouldn't You would. it would almost be like having a dorsal fin yeah. um surfacing at the water so they're very inconspicuous, very little disturbance. So spotting them is even harder than other inconspicuous species like harbor porpoises. So basically, you have to have calm water. Um, and, and around South America, a lot of that water is not calm.
1: I was thinking, I'm like, that would be very tricky. there. Mm-hmm,
0: just a little bit. So there really aren't a lot of wild sightings, honestly. Like The information we have from it are very limited um, observations of actual porpoises in the water. Uh, which is very interesting. Um, so they are very hard to see. Um, and so I, I, it was very similar to harbor porpoises, right? In the way that they surface really calmly, they they can be really low to the water. Um, they're just hard to see, but they're even worse than harbor porpoises. Uh, so I would not want to try to do photo ID on, on these guys. Um, uh, so they are like porpoises in that they are in groups, small groups of usually one to two, up to six. I saw up to 10 is uh, uncommon. Um, but they've seen up to 70, and I'll talk in a minute about some bigger, or in the new research, I'll talk about some other sightings that has been seen, mm. um, but very similar to um, our porpoises here. Uh, small groups tend to be the, the way that they go. Um, they, So I saw a lot of things where they rarely breach, but I'm wondering, is that simply because we don't see them very often? I mean, Probably,
1: we thought that yeah. porpoises
0: don't breach that much, but they do more than we thought now that we're out there watching so it's possible that they don't um but it's also possible it's just because we don't have enough wild observations
1: yeah i think that's an important caveat for a lot of the behavioral stuff probably Mm -hmm. is just that it really is so difficult to know because there have been so few observations exactly
0: um so as kat was alluding to they are thought to prefer cold and shallow waters Uh, and cold is like 17 to 18 degrees celsius which I should have done the Fahrenheit conversion. That seems
1: not that cold to me. I know. But 17 when, to 18 degrees.
0: Yeah. They, and everything like, that said that's cooler. Um,
1: I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's probably like 50s into the 60s.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, that's about like our, high, that's yeah, our water 17 is.
1: to 18 is like, like quite nice summer weather in Shetland. Yeah. So, well, well, probably like, probably, probably like low to low to high 60s. I would guess. Yeah. Okay, Once you get well, into guess, the 20s, I think it's into like the mid 70s here.
0: Okay. That makes sense. But I mean, that's about the temperature we have here is 55 degrees. Per yeah. So
1: yeah, maybe it's um, slightly warmer, but yeah, and by much.
0: it probably depends on their, they may be saying that's cooler when you're at the higher latitude, since this is on the Southern hemisphere, as you get closer to the equator, that would be warmer. So that, that would actually be cooler for them in relation.
1: Right. Well, and also coastal waters obviously do warm up yes. more than than um, offshore waters anyway. Right. So, so yes, yeah, so
0: when the, the shallow waters are cooler like that, it would make sense.
1: Yeah. Um so
0: usually they're found 100 to 1000 meters from shore uh and about 5 to 25 meters deep um usually less than about 50 meters so less than about 150 feet something like that um but off of Argentina there have been some that have been captured um in 30 to 60 meter water and 50 kilometers from shore so
1: ooh, whoa
0: yeah and what's interesting is this that's on the atlantic side Um, and so that may have to do with the fact that the continental shelf is much longer on the Atlantic side Um, and so they can be found farther offshore because it's still more shallow so the geography makes total sense
1: Mm -hmm. see this is where again taking that like whole picture approach where it's like wow that's really weird that's like totally abnormal for the species and then you actually look at the oceanography of it, you're like oh makes total sense
0: right well it's still shallow water there so
1: right (laughs) it's not just a, a
0: blanket like they're in within this meter of shore, like it has to do with what's below the water. Um, And in the Northern parts of the range, they have been seen offshore in a thousand meters of water. So very deep. hmm. Um, So I think it a lot depends on what's down there and and where they are in their location around uh, in the Atlantic and the Pacific.
1: Well, and I would also hazard a guess that like you were saying earlier, you know, if they're so difficult to see, especially once you get out into Mm -hmm. that deeper water, just the swell, the the waves are gonna be, wave action is gonna be a lot larger maybe it's possible their range is further than we think. We just can't see them out there.
0: Yeah, and I'll have some more of the new research about even further things. Right. Yeah, so Perfect. It's, it's very cool. It's like builds on each other.
1: I um, see. So love it when they, it comes
0: together. I know, right? <laughs> um, it all connects. Um, they do think that the population is bigger in the Pacific coast, um, which is interesting because you would think the Atlantic might be bigger because the shelf is larger, but, you know. Um, but they thought maybe they have to compete more with other species on the Atlantic side where are the Pacific mm-hmm. side this is the main main uh, species within that same kind of niche or size so
1: okay
0: they have to do with that right um, they have also been seen in bays in estuaries channels and fjords so again they like to be close to the closer to the coast however um, there was one kind of uh, it was is in a paper but it was one that was not documented by or confirmed by like trained researchers or citizen scientists um, but it was said that they saw two animals that were documented 18 kilometers upstream under the Pedro de Valdivia bridge in downtown Valdivia um, wow yeah so well, it's that's weird that's, yeah if that's a true one it may be you know two weirdos that decided to, <laughs> to veer off course <laughs> um but it's it's unconfirmed is what if that was so it's possible Mm -hmm. to go to the rivers but we don't know interesting um yeah and
1: i saw one
0: thing said that they maybe may move closer to shore at night um the season movements are interesting again we don't know a lot um they've been seen and captured in all seasons so it's i think it's similar to porpoises where they're they're there all the time but there may be some bigger and smaller you know when they're in certain places uh, higher abundance or higher sightings. Um, in Argentina and Chile, they have documented seasonal movements. Um, and in southern Chile, they, they've um, connected those more to following prey more than the, the other ones are just like, OK, we see them at different seasons. Right. Um, so I think there is and I'll talk a little bit in a minute. Um, there's I think there's differences in sightings with seasons, which will relate to prey and reproduction and you know that kind of all that stuff together which makes sense um this uh, this kind of went with diet or like fever but um somehow they they have a fasted recorded speed of four kilometers per hour Hmm. Um, and they often breathe seven to eight times and then dive for three minutes and then can come up as much as 50 feet away so it sounds very similar to harbor porpoises they don't really generally do seven to eight times but maybe three to five um but you know go down and then come back up somewhere else that does not help for pictures. Um, they do seem to be pretty skittish around boats so if boats approach they do pretty much scatter so it makes it even more difficult to observe them. Makes um, sense. Mm-hmm. And they can um, identify, I can only saw one reference to this and I couldn't find like anything deeper, they can identify them by respiration sounds at the surface.
1: So oh so that they have like a distinguishable exhale
0: I guess I mean I don't know if that just means like like harbor porpoises where they're so loud that you can like oh there's something there or it's like right oh that's specifically a burmeister porpoise because it's got that weird rasp to it you know
1: I don't Mm, know good question
0: yeah I thought that was really interesting but then I couldn't find anything further on it (laughs) so maybe so and that
1: it might just be more like the porpoises where they do have a loud exhale and so there you don't see anything else except for you hear the blow right exactly potentially how interesting
0: yeah, and then so even though I'm going to talk about acoustics later, that's going to be about click detection. As far as I know, that no underwater sounds have been recorded for these porpoises.
1: Not that I'm aware of.
0: Yeah, so we don't know. We we can register when they're there by doing the click detectors that detect when the echolocation clicks are, um, but we don't know what they sound like. So it's interesting um so the last thing i'll we'll talk about is uh reproduction uh gestation is about 11 to 12 months and one thing i saw 10 months so i put 10 to 12 somewhere around there um the population in northern peru calves mostly in late summer to early fall um but i'm really confused on this because of the opposite seasons right i um, was
1: gonna say are they doing like southern hemisphere fall
0: so i have two different things and it's confusing so they have a pregnant female with a late term fetus that was found in uruguay in late february um and, and so this plus, their... so that would be their summer yes.
1: summer is february to March. summer into March fall March. summer into fall yeah exactly yeah yeah um,
0: so this plus other researchers believe that they mate from june to september calving in may through august
1: which is like which is their, their winter. winter yeah interesting which is weird
0: Huh. Um, and then another one says they suggest a peak of conception and parturition when they have babies uh, in summer, which is February and March, which is not what they said in the other one. Um, and pregnant, but pregnant females were recorded year round and meeting may take place in the summer. So.
1: <laughs> oh, and right, right. That's really well. And again, I mean, unfortunately, just speaks to how little we know about them, right, yeah. where there's not really been any good observations to determine when this is actually happening and I would imagine I mean their their range is massive like if you look at the different areas that they could be found
0: oh yeah the the southern tip of South America is going to be very different than the northern part of South America yeah
1: absolutely so I mean it might even be like it varies with location you Mm -hmm.
0: know well you know almost like the harbor seals where you go you know it changes as you go north but then as you go south in Puget Sound it it is weird so
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, It may just, it may be that there's different parts um, more so than there are for other species, just based on that. Right. So, and then I, of course, I always get weirded out and confused when it's the Southern Hemisphere seasons, because I have to, it's all backwards. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it it seemed like one of them was talking about, like, our seasons, and then the other one was talking about...
1: Right, that's what I was going to say. It's very, yeah, it's confusing um and then the only
0: other thing is they cut uh, from a couple places they reach sexual maturity at 1.55 meters for males and 1.6 meters for females um again i they don't have ages because we have no idea how old they are there's a, I could find nothing about
1: Makes sense though. I mean, again, like if you're, if they're barely studied at all, the last thing you're going to know is how long they live. Exactly. Like
0: we've been studying hybrid purposes a lot more now. We still don't know how long they live, really. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what I have for their feeding and behavior and reproduction. Um, So after a quick break, we'll get into the status and threats and then some cool new research that will link back to what we've been talking about. So excited. Yes. We'll be back after a quick break. we're back. So Kat, let's talk about what's happening with this population that we have no idea how big it is.
1: (laughs) Right, we basically know nothing about them. Good. Um, Good question. So the Burmeister's porpoise are currently listed as near threatened by the IUCN, as I mentioned earlier. And so they were originally listed as data deficient, and they actually technically still are also listed as data deficient. So usually those are two different categories within the IUCN, where we simply don't know enough to know anything about how threatened or not threatened they are. Right, because they won't even with say the, if they're
0: threatened or not, because they'll just say it's
1: fish Right, because they, they have no idea. Um, with these guys, due to the recent declines in their populations, we do know that they are under threat. And so I think because of that, they had to acknowledge, like, we don't know enough, but we know that they are currently, at least as far as we can tell, being hunted to the point where they are being threatened. So a right. little bit of a confusing one, but kind of makes sense now that we've gone into like how little we know, but we know little bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought that was actually kind of cool that they, they included both of those, but yes, technically their listing is near, near threatened. Um, and as I mentioned, it is thought that the Peruvian population of Burmeister's porpoise may actually be more isolated than the other populations and therefore a greater risk. Um, they are genetically more distinct than in other areas. So it seems like maybe they're not outbreeding, or maybe this is kind of like the Black Sea harbor porpoise, um, Mm -hmm. that they are potentially uh, even, there there was talk of like even potentially having them listed as a a subspecies or a different species. Mm -hmm. Um, So, again, it does just indicate that there are these potentially pocketed populations that are more threatened or more at risk um, of extinction than others.
0: So I'm going to go ahead and, and throw in here because you just touched on the, one of the new papers, the new research. that. Was oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. So I'll
0: just kind of fill in on that. Um, yeah. So they did the genetic differentiation with, which is interesting, nuclear and mitochondrial DNA. Okay. So being able to do both is pretty interesting. You're not just looking at the mother line. You're looking at all of it. Um, and they uh, caught them either incidentally or directly caught um, from Peru, Chile and Argentine waters. And they said there was major population differentiation in, the, in that South American Pacific coast. And Peru, Peru was much different than the Chilean and the Argentine dolphins. Um, and that, like you said, they should be considered maybe as an isolated stock. Um, and it's, that that population boundary is consistent with the population structure found in the sympatric dusky dolphin, which is very interesting. interesting. Yeah. Okay. So there must be some line there that makes, like, you don't cross the line mm-hmm. <laughs> for any species mm-hmm. that are there um and the uh, as you mentioned the peruvian one is due to the high exploitation exploitation levels which i'm sure you were going to get into um but it's basically just that that study strengthens like these guys are isolated and they are more intensely have more intense threats mm-hmm. um and they did look at that difference between the atlantic and pacific but they it wasn't obvious it actually didn't show it in the structure mm-hmm. um but they were like it's a small sample size so they need bigger sample size Um, and what's really interesting is the Peruvian ones they were they were even different within the different harbors that they that they looked at.
1: Wow. So
0: even fine scale more fine scale than even just Peruvian versus the other ones.
1: Interesting I wonder how far apart the different harbors were that they were looking at. Yeah
0: so I'm not sure I didn't get too deep into that paper but um, Hmm. it it basically shows you like maybe there are even more local populations and that gets into that whole you need to understand the population structure before you say what a stock is. You know, do you right. do you have these small little communities that don't really mix? Like that's important to understand. So yeah. Yeah. I that was fascinating. Cool. Yeah. So it connected hmm. there. I like that. So
1: yeah, yeah, no, that was that was perfect timing. Um, and actually that segues nicely into the threats. So yay. let's get into it. Um I mean, so not yay
0: for threats.
1: I well, right. It's always the it's always the weird, it's the right. weird part. Um, so as we've alluded to multiple times now, hunting, active hunting is a huge issue for Burmeister's porpoise. So these guys historically and currently are hunted for their meat um, predominantly. So it's used for bait and also for human consumption throughout their range, Um, particularly in parts of Southern Chile and Peru. um, It's especially common. So I did read that I think in certain locations, they preferentially use it as crab bait and other areas they specifically use it as bait for I think squid um, I saw
0: crab a lot in this one. yeah really
1: I think it depends on like the location and just probably what the predominant fishery is in that specific location
0: and we talked about this before when another one we were talking about these animals being used as that and it's like crabs don't eat porpoises so like why is it such a good
1: I mean I guess they might if there's a dead porpoise in mm-hmm. the water column sure. Not, I'm sure they would actually chew on it but,
0: yeah. um, but they're not out there like fighting
1: for purposes right, right. Epic, i mean but... presumably it's been somewhat successful if they continue to use it as bait right. but um also th- yeah like i said i did think it was interesting that it was also used for human consumption mm-hmm. uh, yeah so this has been a huge huge issue um again like this is still going on this is not just i know in certain areas they've i think ceased using it as bait at least um mm-hmm. since like so i think it was like the 1990s they they did stop using it as bait in certain areas um but because we know that this is the main threat for these guys, I think that's, again, what kind of led to that IUCN listing as near-threatened, because we right. know that they are still being actively taken. It's not just like, we don't know I how many there it. are, yeah. and and they're just dying of natural causes, or like the odd thing here or there. It's like, no, they're being actively hunted right. um, pretty regularly, is what it seems, which I find fascinating, given how little scientifically we know about their distribution and mm-hmm. how many there are and like the fisher If you talk to the fishermen i'm sure they could tell you way more than we know about these guys
0: yeah, <laughs> pretty yeah pretty- if we could use that information versus fighting with it it would be a lot better yeah. which actually i'll talk about combination of research and uh, and uh fishing vessels in, the, in my new research. So that'll connect later
1: too. Oh, interesting. Okay, cool. Because yeah, the next one I have is, is those fisheries interactions. So yeah. again, we've talked about this with other porpoise species, you know, being smaller, particularly feeding on a lot of the same fish that the fishermen are themselves targeting. Bycatch is pretty common. Mm-hmm. Um, again, an ongoing threat for these porpoises. So I, I did read one thing that it said the annual estimated bycatch is largest in Peru at about 2000 individuals. So that's every year about 2000 Burmeister's porpoise are caught. and that's just the ones that are reported. Yeah. Yes, so,
0: which is the low number, right? There.
1: So yeah. that's one location. So, I mean, again, this is this is where it's a little bit at odds with the population estimate, right? Where it's like, oh, about five hundred, like right. And again, I don't know when that number was from. I'm yeah. not sure if that's the most recent number. If that's from like ten years ago, that it was around two thousand individuals they were taking or they were bycatching annually. Right. But again, it just goes to show that like there's these guys are really. They're, they're kind of up against it out there. Mm-hmm. And there, it seems like there are a lot of animals that are being actively killed, unfortunately, or unintentionally killed.
0: Right.
1: Um, and so really does just kind of go into like, the more we can learn about them and their populations and where they are, the more we can potentially take action to protect them. Right. Um, and the last one I'll mention for threats is of course, climate change. So of course, long-term climate change is a factor, but these guys also seem to be very sensitive to um, El Nino and La Nina events. Um, mm-hmm did note that, again, this is food related, right? So in severe El Nino events, the Humboldt current, which apparently brings in all the anchovies to the area, gets disrupted. So that actually gets kind of rerouted due to the, the temperature differences in the water. Um, and that means that a lot of the food sources for both the Burmeister's porpoise and other marine mammals in the area plummets. Mm-hmm. So apparently in 1997, there was an El Nino event that corresponded to um, quite a few burmeisters porpoise stranding on peruvian beaches and they were i guess at the time found to be malnourished so just you know yes long-term climate change is of course a factor for these guys but also being slightly more sensitive to those short-term oscillations as well
0: yeah and i did see somewhere they had um one of the reasons i think that peru was even more um it they were in more threat there was because of the fishing stuff but also that climate change part of it, that that humble yeah. current really affects that area um, mm-hmm. pretty, pretty strongly.
1: Right. And exactly. So that's, that's a good point, right? Like there the impact that, that different populations would have because of that might vary depending on their location within their range. Exactly. So, yeah. Cool. Those are the threats.
0: So um, my new research, um, there was surprisingly a fair amount. Um, and uh, and it has a lot to do with the the fishing and the bycatch, um, and because uh, that is their biggest threat. Um, but what's interesting is that um, they're using the fishermen um, in the research. So the first paper I have is from 2018: Distribution and habitat use of a cryptic small cetacean, the Burmeister's porpoise, monitored from a small, small-scale small scale fishery platform. Hmm. So they're actually out on the small—that's you know, small-scale fish boat, fishing boat. Um, so they used passive acoustics. They used C pods for, um, from 2009 to 2012 um, and just listened for the porpoises. Um, and so they found again, shallow water, less than 200 meter depth, cooler 17 to 18 degrees um, and close to shore, less than 50 kilometers. Um, there was a positive correlation between the likelihood of bycatch event and the acoustic presence of both dolphins and porpoises. So they, they looked at dolphins as well. Um, so basically like it's more likely you're gonna bycatch them if they're around there feeding, which makes sense. Shocker. <laughs> right? Um, uh, but they also found them in neritic uh, water, so a more open ocean, up to 200 meters depth and over 100 kilometers from shore. So hmm. again, they go farther offshore. They like right. closer shore, but you know, there's reasons for them to go off there. Um, and this study was important because it showed that the passive acoustics and the small scale fisheries Um, You know, working together can provide data on distribution and habitat use with a low cost and is suitable in regions with low monitoring effort and high fishing pressure. So if you know the fishing boats are probably going to be out where those animals are, then it it would be good to be able to utilize that. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was a nice thing of, of, you know, working together versus working against each other. and then on that, they showed that another study in 2019 showed that pingers reduced the activity of birdmeister's porpoises around small-scale gillnets. So they looked at, and this is Peru, Peruvian small-scale drift net fleet over four years, and they used sea pods. Um, again, those shallow habitat of cooler waters, shallow waters. Um, the use of pingers led to an 86 percent reduction in porpoise activity around the wow. nets. So that's wow. huge. So that could really reduce mortality. Um, and again, also shows the potential of using passive acoustics to determine the effectiveness of bycatch mitigation. So are the rules that you're in place saying like, hey, put fingers on there. You can actually see if it's if it's changing their behavior and reducing the likelihood that they're going to get caught. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is especially good for those places where their animals are really hard to see <laughs> and document. Um, and we're getting statistically meaningful bycatch rates is logistically challenging. So like you said, like the amount that we're actually bycatching is going to be probably more than what we're actually reporting. Okay. Um, so this can help with with in areas like that where it's hard to, to get that information. Um, along with the extended ranges, um, there was one in 2019 that there was the first record of the Burmeister's porpoise in the Falkland Islands. I saw that. Yeah. That thing crazy. So, and what's interesting is that you know it's like South uh, South America, and then you have the Falkland Islands over here. And it wasn't even the west side, it was the east side of Falkland Islands. Wow. So it went all the way across. Um, so it was an adult male that stranded on the Eastern coast in June, 2019. And unfortunately the carcass was removed before anybody mm-hmm. could get to it, but there were pictures. Uh, and it was definitely a Burmeister's <laughs> Um, And so it, it confirms that there's a sixth range state. So the other five were Peru, Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, and Brazil that we know they are. Also, we've now seen them in the Falkland Islands, um, and this expands the distribution range. From a previous nearest occurrence was the Tierra del Fuego, um, so that's the Falkland Islands are 600 kilometers across the Patagonian shelf. That's huge! Wow. Um, so, but, wow! But the shelf is shallow, right? So it's less than 200 meters deep. So it's suitable habitat for them, kind of all the way across.
1: Right. I'm just wondering, I'm so curious if like, was that always part of the range and they just weren't observed out there? Or is this, are they now like branching out? So that's exactly the question, right?
0: Yeah. So they're like, they went through, they're like, well, it could have been a strand, you know, one that died and just washed in, but because it was all the way to the east side, it seems it was a fresh carcass. So it doesn't oh, okay. seem like wow. it had died farther out and then, you know, a couple yeah. times or whatever. Um. So it, it does seem that it's more likely that that animal went there, but was it the weirdo that just happened to go up the river? You know, I'm going to go and walk about and go six hundred kilometers this way. Or, and they also did note that the waters around the Falkland Islands are not conducive to right. spotting these guys. So, well, that's
1: what I'm thinking because that's pretty gnarly water down there. Mm-hmm. So it's like, how many people are observing? How many people are able to see anything out there when they're? I mean, especially a Burmeister's porpoise. Yeah. Well, because
0: and this is like sub-antarctic waters, right? So yeah. it's like it's it's not not pretty dumb. I
1: mean yeah that gets pretty stormy
0: yeah so it may just be that this is part of their normal range but and it's unlikely it's it's also like there may have been more strandings but there's not that many people on the east side of the Falkland Islands Mm. and they may just get eaten right away like one uh, I think it was in that paper they said one stranded and within 64 before the people could get out there like 64 hours later so like three-ish days something like that um, it was completely eaten it was just a skeleton wow. in the flukes. So wow. if things are stranding, it's likely that they're going to be gone before anybody sees them. Right. So um, I thought that was very interesting. So it's like, we really don't know. Do they go all the way across the Patagonian shelf? Is it like, you know, it's very hmm. exciting. Um, so then another exciting uh, thing was an unusually large aggregation of Burmeister's porpoises off Peru. Um, in This was in 2002. Um, and they had 150 porpoises.
1: Wow.
0: So, so kind of like our big, large groupings that we see here sometimes, the harbor corpuses. Um, So range of 100 to 200 um, near Isla Guanape Sur off the north central Peruvian coast. In September 2001, there were mothers and calves. There was another group of 40 that were nearby that was likely connected because they were basically doing the same thing and it wasn't too far away. Um, the only other large grouping that they had documented was from the Bay of um, Mejelones uh, in northern Chile in 1982. Um, Hmm. So very rare to see these large aggregations, although it's very rare to see them at all, so.
1: (laughs) Right, right, so even cooler.
0: Yeah, Um, but they were in subgroups of like one to five individuals traveling south on parallel track lines. So they were all together, but like in smaller subgroups um, and widely dispersed over half a nautical mile on each side of the boat. Um, So again, they don't do it. And um, they did see this in the neuritic habitat. So this was more open water. And what's really interesting going back to the threats um, is that the fishermen were prepared to set a gill net in order to catch some. Oh. So they were like, oh, there's a whole bunch of these guys. We're going to put get to specifically catch them.
1: But wow. the author of the
0: study was on the boat and dissuaded them by telling them it would be illegal and you shouldn't do that. Um, but it shows that the direct takes may be more of an issue than they previously thought,
1: mm-hmm. um, like, like
0: you had mentioned earlier.
1: Mm-hmm. So, and that wow. was,
0: again, just in 2002. So, I mean, like
1: 10 years ago. 20 years, 20 years ago. ago. I can do math. <laughs>
0: That's what I, I think the 80s is still like 30 years ago. So that's fine. <laughs> um, so anyway, but that's still relatively recent that they were like, oh, we're just gonna take them. Um then uh the last one I have uh was a short note about them off the northern coast of Peru. And I think there is more research on in Peru because of that higher threat to them. Mm-hmm. Um maybe it's easier to study them there versus south or south. Mm-hmm. Um They had higher counts of porpoises in the cooler months, again, July, um, that winter time for them, groups of one, two, or three. Uh, They increased in occurrence when the cold waters uh, are prevalent during the upwelling peaks in that austral winter, July to September, Mm -hmm. so again, linking back to what you said. Um, And so that that makes the conditions for anchovy very ideal. um, so again, it, it went with other, another study that showed that cooler waters at 17 to 18 degree waters in the winter months is is the best. Um, and they saw reduced sightings in March, which may be due to mating and parturition that they're having babies, then they're less likely to be seen, which is kind of what we see here in the, with our purposes, right? They kind of disappear and then they show up with babies. So, mm-hmm. um, so again, those sightings and seasonality may have to do with feeding and also reproduction. Mm -hmm. um so there's some cooler stuff going on and and passive acoustics is a really big one for them because they are so hard to see so it's great that these C pods can be used to help determine who's there where where they are when they're there and how we can reduce the intentional and unintentional killing of these animals
1: yeah absolutely Um,
0: so that's all i had for the for my current research i do have a couple of fun facts that go with um that that were new research but they I didn't have too much to say about them, except that, hey, this is the thing. So I was going to leave them for a fun facts. So we'll let you start with the, um, the names, because the names are always so yeah.
1: long. Okay, cool. So yeah, you guys might have been wondering this entire time, <laughs> why the heck are they called Burmeister's porpoise? Yes. Like, that's kind of a w- weird choice of a name for a porpoise. So they were, in fact, named after Herman Burmeister, who first identified the species in 1865. That's crazy. That's really, that's a really long time ago. Especially um, for
0: how hard they, these are to see.
1: I know I know it's well it just makes me wonder if it's like a lot of them where maybe they were more prevalent at that time too whereas yeah. if they're in greater numbers or I mean again also different different times using different vessels and all that kind of stuff but anywho so that they're named after him um their latin name this is so fun their latin name is phocina spinapinnis meaning spiny porpoise <laughs> So we come back funny. to the turbicles. yes and apparently, locally, is known as Mar- Mariposa espinosa, which is mm-hmm. thorny porpoise. Yep. Um, or Marsopa, I think, actually. Marsopa espinosa, thorny porpoise. And also Chancho marino, which is sea pig. Sea pig? Mm hmm. Oh, so. it's like funny because our... harbor porpoises are known as pigs. pigs. Yeah, right. So, exactly. Mm. Um Poor porpoises. And then. Right. And <laughs> apparently, they were also for a long time known as black porpoises. And that is because so first of all, like I said, they can be dark gray to, you know, right. looking black at times. But apparently, when they die, they turn black almost immediately. That's great. And so almost all the individuals that they were finding oh, were black. already dead. And so they're like, well, these animals must just be black. That's
0: great. So how then how do you like you see them in the wild and you go, oh, that's a different different thing because it's not. But with their weird color.
1: fin, you yeah, you'd be that able would to yeah. think, like, but that's the same as the weird fin. And probably over time, once mm-hmm. they actually were like, you know, maybe the individuals looking at them were then hunting them potentially or you know, I'm sure right. they're or, the, or they, sort they of talk of to the fishermen and say,
0: like, oh, when we caught them in gray and then they immediately turn black.
1: Right. Exactly. Like, oh those guys look different until we brought them in and then they mm-hmm. but it's apparently it's within minutes of dying, they'll turn black. So
0: that reminds me if you've ever caught um, a mahi mahi, um, which is a delicious white fish. Um, but you, it, they're be- this beautiful um, yellow and green color. But then as soon as you catch them, like within minutes, it just goes away.
1: It's the same as a, I believe the, um, is it the sailfish that does the oh, same thing? It, mm-hmm. um, I think where they're like incredible, like iridescent and they yeah, just turn it's, like. It's like you yeah, turn the light out, out, it just disappears. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really sad. But anyway, so that led to one of their more common, um, common, common names for a long time was they were known as black porpoise.
0: Just yeah so i have one is that is that all your that's it that's it okay
1: so i found one um and it was
0: it was a um this was a local website for uh, the marine mammals in that area in in south america i think it might have been in peru um but they were talking about how difficult they are to observe and they called them phantoms of the sea
1: oh i love it
0: i know right i I think there's so
1: many cool i think these guys have the biggest number of cool names for porpoises so probably yeah like these are all really cool names
0: yeah it's pretty yeah, they're phantoms I love it
1: wow <laughs> that's awesome mm-hmm. very dramatic
0: um so I have uh let's see I oh, already talked about, we already talked about the genetic differentiation of, mm-hmm. the, of the populations but so the couple um just kind of interesting odd uh factoids new yeah factoids oh uh, there's one in 2017 and this I I've read the abstract. I'm like, oh my god. I let me just read the last sentence because I don't know what you just said because it's all technical names. Was the choroid plexus cyst and the neonatal Burmeister's corpus. And so, basically, what I'm just going to tell you because that whole thing was like it was a you know it does all the pathology. So I'm like, I don't need all the words. I'm like, okay, I know what most of that kind of is, but. but it's the first evidence of a neuroepithelial cyst. So on a nerve, the, wow. the epithelium, the outside skin part of no, not skin, but outside part of the, uh, ner- I guess, a neuron or some kind of nerve tissue. Um, first evidence of a neuroepithelial cyst in a cetacean species.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: So apparently I they're understand. not very common at all, uh, and then we really have never seen one. In a station, hmm. and it was um, neonatal, and the cause of death was a shark trauma. Ooh. yeah,
1: so,
0: yeah. So again, there's that thing that this, these happen all the time. We just don't see them because we don't, you know, cut up porpoises. Right. All the they time, don't, or, right? Or they just
1: they just yeah. don't make it, and then they, yeah, as yeah. happens,
0: right? Or is this you know rare? So that was interesting. That was interesting. Yeah. Um Then, on a, in, a, in, in the other direction of the porpoise, um, there's um, genital warts. They apparently huh. uh, get genital warts. And that's really all I put as the subpart part for that. I said, they get genital warts.
1: Because
0: <laughs> it, it went into Who like knew? the, the it went into the evolution of like how related this virus is to that virus. Right. Is
1: it the same as right? Is it the same as the same one that humans get or exactly. Is Exactly. Totally different. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. So this is the Focina spinapinis papillomavirus type.
1: Wow. Um, and evidence
0: for a second distantly related one. So how
1: fascinating! two
0: different ones found in the same, in, in, in these animals. So that was interesting. Hmm. Um, and the last one is kind of cool. It was the first description of the Burmeister Corpus electrocardiogram. Oh, so, and this was actually on a wild juvenile. Female. Um, wow. and not, they was, it was temporarily held in captivity for rehabilitation. So there is, uh, in Mar de Plata aquarium in Argentina. So hmm. I guess there is one that they can take these animals to rehabilitate, which I thought was cool. Um, it's really cool. And, yeah, and they did uh, EKG, e- ECGs uh, on them. And it reported the amplitude and duration of measurements of a potentially healthy specimen, um, which represents the starting point for the determination of normal ECG values for the species, right? So you have to have that baseline before you can know what's right or wrong. Um, and right. they documented that the ECG was a valuable non-invasive tool for cetacean's cardiac health assessment. Hmm.
1: So, That's really neat.
0: Yeah, so learning new things about these phantoms of the sea right i like it love it um so if you unless you have any other fun facts i think that's all i have that was it awesome well um we had i had a lot of fun with this one because they're really cool even though we don't know a whole lot about them yeah so uh we hope you guys had fun as well um next episode we'll probably be back to another general review so again if you have one paper or something there or topic that you want us to talk about please let us know um, also make sure you follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and in about a month, we'll have another Marine Highlight um, uh, poll, so you can choose. Uh, maybe we'll put the Waddell seal back up, or maybe not, we'll see. Um, we'll see where our, our thoughts take us. Uh, and then also make sure to check out our website. We, are, we have some up and coming new merch that we're gonna be getting out hopefully soon. We got some awesome new designs from one of our um, supporters and volunteers that does great design work. Uh, so we're really excited to get those out so uh, keep your eye on the social media and also our website for that um, And in the meantime we do have merch and with animals and stuff on the website so please check that out and remember to like and share with anybody you think would be interested um, and we will see you next time
1: bye bye
0: This was brought to you by Pacific Mammal Research, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. To learn more about the species we discuss, check out our blog. Head to our website, www.pacmam.org, that's P A C M A M.org, to check it out. Also, help us continue providing fun and educational content like this by donating today. Your help is how we can continue to do our work and share it with you. Thanks.